Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and my producer this evening is the wonderful Anthony Dockrell. Coming up. It's been less than a week since another Australian Prime Minister was torn down and as with the five other changes in the past 11 years, yes, six in all, last week was messy, brutal and played out fully in the media. It is fair to say that this leadership change was particularly messy and especially shocking. So tonight's show is dedicated to Australian politics and Australian journalism. In particular, we are going to look at three aspects of the rolling of Malcolm Turnbull, himself, I should add, a former journalist, among many other things. Perhaps he'll turn back to it. Who knows? Anyway, number one, we're going to look at the role played or not played by the fourth estate in the leadership change. Did some journos, as Nines Chris Ullman say, cross the line between reporter and activist? Number two, whether the news media was far more interested in playing the men and the one woman instead of examining the substantive issue behind Turnbull's rolling, namely climate change as expressed in energy policy. And three, what on earth do all these machinations say about Australia and how can you report this form of madness, to quote the former Prime Minister, to an overseas audience? To help us through this madness through this maze. We are joined by Monica Attard, who I've got a very long introduction, if I could just give it to you. Monica Attard, who has had an extensive career in the media, starting in Channel 7, through various roles in radio and at the ABC, including being the Russian correspondent, reporting for the Late Line and hosting Media Watch. She has a couple of Walkleys to her name and has now started as head of journalism at UTS. Welcome, Monica. Thanks, Peter. Uh, we also have Nick O'Malley, not the basis from the Arctic Monkeys. No, that's not me. <laughs> it's like, I'm sure you'd love his money. But uh, but the senior writer and former U.S. correspondent for the City Morning Herald, or or what we used to call Fairfax Media. We're uh, Sydney Morning we're, Herald again, I think, now. Uh, we are, yes, mm. that's right. Let's, re- uh, let's go back to our roots here. Um, uh, joining us for the first time, we have Jamie Smith. That's Smith with a Y, for people who follow his byline, who is the Australian Pacific correspondent for the London Financial Times. I know why we put London on there. Welcome, Jamie. Do, no. we, do you still put London Financial Times? In no, it? no, we don't. No, no. no. Global okay. newspaper now owned by Nikkei in Japan. So. Right. So yeah. we should say the Tokyo Financial Times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway. And finally, Damien Cave, the New York Times Australian Bureau Cor- uh, Chief Correspondent. Uh, no stranger to this show. Welcome back, Damien. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's get straight to it. Oh, let's not. Malcolm Turnbull did call it a type of madness. And after six prime ministers in 11 years, it's really hard not to see his point. But can we start on a slightly positive note? In many respects, the events of the past week showed what the media and the press gallery do best, reporting news, fast-breaking news, and cutting through the fog of war to keep all Australians and many politicians informed. So first impression, just quickly around the panel, and we'll get to the specifics of what we talked about in a minute. Uh, But overall impression, how did the news media do last week? Mark said a 10, and why? Starting with you, Monica. 
Uh, well, I mean, parts of the news media did exceptionally well. I mean, there were parts of the news media that reported it straight down the down the line, mm-hmm. and it was you know reasonably objective, and they were checking their own facts. And if you look at um, the efforts of, I think in particular, uh, Catherine Murphy at the Guardian, who was so intent on not putting to print uh, or putting online anything that was remotely, um, you know. Iffy, um, fantastic, wonderful. Okay. So, marks of the Guardian, marks uh, the Guardian, and overall, the ABC, and the ABC. Overall, I think, uh, out of ten. Oh, I can't. You can't. I don't think you, know, you can do couldn't, it overall. Couldn't generalize. Okay, that's I, fine. I don't think you can generalize. We'll, we'll pause on that. It's fine, Daniel. Okay. What do you think? Uh, I'm also going to avoid the seven uh, out of ten or six mm. out of ten because we all end up in the middle with those things, anyways. But um, I do think that there was a pretty strong showing by journalism in a lot of ways. I mean, I think this is the kind of thing that media is good at: um, fast breaking political news. Um, if there's a criticism, I would say that sometimes, uh, you know, how much sort of step back analysis there is is part of a part of the conversation. Um, there wasn't a ton of that, but I think that sort of emerged later after the spill. I mean, it was moving so quickly. It was hard in the middle of it. Wasn't exactly. It? So, I, but I think it was a pretty strong showing. Okay, Nick. I think it was a really mixed bag. I think there was some great analysis and great fast reporting, and uh, I'm sure we're going to get back to this. There was some activism. Indeed, we're certainly going to get back mm. to the activism. Okay, Jamie. Just yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Um, one interesting uh, fact, I guess, was the social media aspect. There was a few um, rumours going around in social media, so I suppose that's uh, some of the reporting wouldn't have been particularly accurate on that. Um, so that's something that I guess we're beginning to grapple with, you know, during uh, the... So that's social, social media... Uh, sorry, reporters using social media exactly. to spread rumour. Yeah. Which yeah. is a problem, right? Well, I think as it, sometimes it's rumor. true, sometimes it turns out not to be. And in that case, you've got to evaluate, you know, which news organization you're working for and can you put out unsubstantiated rumors. So I think that's something that we've all got to think about now in this age of social media. Okay, so let's get to the guts of it. I'm going to stick with you, Jamie. Turnbull used his last press conference as Prime Minister to settle a few scores, as is the one of these events. Uh, he basically singled out Tony Abbott and Peter Dutton. Uh, but he also kind of was a little bit more subtle, but he basically talked about the news media by picking for the first three questions in order the ABC, Fairfax and Guardian. So he was a sort of, if you like, a bit, a bit subtle, but nonetheless, people in the, news, in the gallery would know exactly what was going on. So it, it, what do you think? What do you, do you think that Chris Yulman, who was much more direct than the Prime Minister, obviously, who, who took aim at 2, 2GB, Sky News After Dark, the Australian, the Democrat, Daily Telegraph, did he have a point that there, that there was this line that was crossed last week between reporting and activism? I think, you know, last week probably isn't the right uh, time period to call this in. You know, I think there has been a lot of activism on Sky over the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question is, are they really news reporters, uh, the people that appear at s- after 7 o'clock in Sky? Probably not. i term them as commentators. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think much of what they're talking about in air is actually news. Um, but certainly it is a form of activism. Um, and I think this is where we're getting to the whole, you know, the foxification of Sky News here in Australia. Um, we've seen what Fox has done in America with Trump. Um, and there's a real question mark over whether you can actually trust a lot of the news. What, what is packaged up in news in that, and what is commentary? Where is the where is the line? Well, so um, your point, and yeah, is that do does the average punter know that they're looking at uh, you know a commentator rather than they're looking at a reporter? 
The line's blurred even further, you've got to say, when during the straight news lineup during the day, they're interviewing all the commentators from the Pretty night. Credible, yeah. <laughs> so they're interviewing the guys that say, hey, they're the commentators. Don't don't mix them in. But they're being interviewed by David Spears at 11 o'clock in the mm. morning. Mm. So the specific allegation, Damien, was that, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't know this for a fact, but the specific allegation that Chris Ullman said was that some reporters were calling up MPs and kind of berating them as to change their vote for leader. That would appear to me. Um, so the, I think just having been in situations like it, you're asking the, the, the politician who you're going to vote for. That's a legitimate question. The illegitimate part of that is saying, oh, no, actually, you should change your vote. Is that? Well, I mean, who knows how these conversations went down. But I think what it speaks to is this filter bubble and this ideological filter bubble where when you have a cozy press with a cozy political class who see themselves as on the same side of a given issue, it's pretty blurry whether or not the reporter says, OK, well, are they saying, well, you should vote for this person? Or is the MP saying, hey, what are you hearing? And then the reporter is reporting back as to what the same people who agree with him are saying. Like, it's clear that there was an agenda from conservative elements of the country that includes media and politicians to push for some kind of ouster of Turnbull, right? And so how that plays out, I think, is complicated. But I think it speaks to a world in which we're all often speaking only to people who agree with us and where it's not even clear if you're pushing an agenda and if you know it half the time. So just to that point, though, it's just sticking with you. I mean, isn't it always been thus? I mean, there's always been a conservative media. I mean, I there's, the fact that there's a conservative media in this country or other countries is not a big surprise. It's true, but I do think there are questions about whether or not the the way that social media works and the way that audiences work these days create an amplification mm. of of this, where you're actually hearing from the loudest voices who are most outraged. And so all of democracy and media to some degree is being forced to listen to the loudest, squeakiest people. And they tend to be very agenda-driven and very demanding of all of us in this world. And so I think that that's what's changed. I think the access to power, the access to the gatekeepers of journalism and politics has changed dramatically, and we're all trying to adjust. Okay, that's a great point. Nick? Well, there's a two-step process here. There are two things that Yulman raised. One is that there had been this campaign from sections of the media for a long time to remove Turnbull. I don't think you can argue that. And I don't think it would be possible for Abbott and Dutton to have mounted this challenge unless Sky News had been blaring in Parliament House for the last 12 months, backed up by 2GB, the telly and the Oz. But what he really spoke to that day was he said that the day after the spill, when the momentum stopped, the first spill, when the momentum stopped, commentators called and lobbied MPs. And I have spoken to people close to the Prime Minister and I have called those journalists. And it turns out that, as far as we know, it's true. Alan Jones has confirmed to the ABC. Yes, he did. But he's not a journalist. I mean, he's a commentator. No, Ross, he's a commentator. Ross Cameron told me that he he actually declined to comment. No, he's hired by uh, Sky, though. Yep. Uh, And Ray Ray Hadley didn't didn't respond. Also not a, well, also not a journalist, right? Or... No, not a journalist, but you also know how close these people are yeah. to Abbott and But it's the camp. amplification of their views, um, as expressed on Sky News, as Damien says, that is actually the problem on social media. Yeah. Because Sky News has, what, 25,000, 30,000 people watching it overnight. I mean, They're it's all not, in Parliament, though. That's true. That's true. So they're speaking. They're speaking. They're speaking to them. Obviously, however, it is the it is the repetition of those views and the amplification of those views on social media that that caused the problem in this instance. And I think also in relation to Chris Orman's comments, I mean, it's a, it's it's one thing to say um, News Corp and 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 that's a pretty 
broad, bland, yeah, very big. Well, very big second, it's a very, yeah. very big statement. Very big statement to say. I mean, I think actually that Shari Markson did some fantastic reporting on this issue in the lead up to the issue. She was reporting it as she saw it, as it was coming to her. I think it's grossly unfair to say that she was a player. I don't think Chris um, said and, that either. And he didn't name her, well, but no, the but, implication but it's, was it's, there. It's interesting what Chris did because he, he did damn the whole of news. No, he, he when he had a direct interview with her, the two of them were put together, and he said, no, of course not. That story you broke on Friday, a legitimate good story, and she's broken some great stories yep. recently. Barnaby Joyce, for instance. Yeah, Barnaby hmm. Joyce. Indeed. So, but the, I'm, I'm interested in Chris's, I mean, I, I wish I had him in the studio today. Maybe we'll get him next week. But, you know, Chris's motivation for doing this. I mean, did we... I guess what it says is here's a senior member of the press gallery, uh, Jamie, a senior member of the press gallery who kind of re- reads a tipping point and, and goes, no, I'm going to call this out. It was a big week, though. It was a big emotional week. And, 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 and journos are tired and, you know, tired and emotional and they get carried away. Well, I mean, us- I actually thought he was very brave for saying it, I have to yeah. say, because calling out Sky News is no mean feat. He told us what his motivation was. People from the PM down told him they believed that a bunch of commentators hadn't yeah, changed the Prime Minister. That, that's but, reporting but he didn't, li- he didn't yeah. limit it to commentators. Yeah, but he, he, the way he did it wasn't that. He, he, he actually wrote a... I mean, he kind mm-hmm. of owned it as a piece of opinion-making rather than writing it as a piece of news. But in explaining why he did it. Which is said. a new style of journalism that we're all becoming very uh, accustomed to, especially on you know morning breakfast shows, opinion. on these sort of chock-chock. Opinion is it's becoming news. much yeah. more... yeah. This is it. There's, there is very little division nowadays, which is a problem, I think. It's, you know? well, it's a problem for the punters, right? Just, I, I guess I it mean, could be a problem for democracy as well. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. oh democracy. That yeah. Because yeah. yeah. well, we are the fourth estate. Um, so, oh, yeah, absolutely. So you know, we're there, to, the lines. People, yeah, we're there to be lines. a check on par. And uh, whenever you're jumping over that uh, sort of news agenda onto commentating and becoming involved in a political process, I mean, so Petta Credlin is not a uh, journalist, a news reporter, she's a commentator, but she's given this platform at Sky, and then to ring someone up and lobby on behalf of the political party. So then can I I ask then, where do we place insiders on ABC TV in this scheme of things? I mean, are they also players? Because they're... They're commentating. They're commentating. They're discussing politics. But the question is, do they ring up a particular MP and say, vote this way or I'm going to monster you on my morning radio program? This is the line that... Well, look, we all know that Alan Jones has been monstering monstering politicians... Well, that's an interesting thought. Uh, uh, We all know that Jones and Hadley have been monstering politicians since the year dot, right? Jones in particular, that's his stock Mm. in trade. That's his whole... And Hadley. And and Hadley. That's what they do. It's what their audience expects of Mm. them. So should we be surprised if they do what their audience expects of them? Well, no, but I just think the issue is that they can skew the way power dynamics work. I mean, to to the question that I think is important, which you raised, is... Would this have happened if not for those commentators amplifying things? And so, you know, that means that they're playing a disproportionate role in democracy. And I think that's a question that's worth asking is do commentators wield this bully pulpit in a way that is anti-democratic and goes against the will of the people? So is Fox News anti-democratic? I think that in many cases it is. That doesn't mean there aren't great reporters and great reporting that comes out of there. Some of them kept me alive in various difficult places. But I do think that it's worth asking the question of, what to what extent does media, when it turns that dial on commentating, skewing 
democracy towards its own views as opposed to the views of the public. And I think it's, you know, if you look at certain issues in Australia, whether it's climate change or same-sex marriage, you have to ask this question, well, why isn't democracy working according to what most of the people want? And part of the factor has to be these commentators who are skewing a perspective and telling people that it's a mass perspective when it's not. And they have a disproportionate amount of power, even in our world where social media is an equalizer and democracy is equalized by technology and all these things that are happening in our disrupted universe. The bottom line is there are still some people who have louder voices and politicians are more likely to listen to certain people who they think represent their base as opposed to the mass. But it's always been this, hasn't it? It's just the amplification of social that's changed it? Or? I mean, sure. You can go back to the era of Hearst. You can go back to the yeah, various eras of journalism. And this is full of, you know, newspapers that existed to produce the proprietor's point of view. But Peter, you didn't have, you didn't have 24-7 sure. rolling news channels. You know, that made, it's made quite a big difference, you know. Um, uh, but going back to Monica's point is that Sky After Dark is watched by the four of us in this room, five of us in this room, six of us in this uh, but, room. But it's, it's watched by 85 liberal MPs religiously. They all have it on in their parliamentary office. So in a curious way, I don't think Sky has probably much influence on the general public coming up to an election, mm -hmm. probably a lot less. But in that strange cloistered environment of the parliament in Canberra, which is set up on a hill away from the public as far as mm. possible. And I think course, it probably and, does. And they've, an and they've been damned. I mean, the, poly, the pollies have been rightly damned for, for ha allowing themselves to be held hostage by the views on but Sky. But this is the other thing I think we're getting from uh, News Corp, as a, and, and it's an effective business model, but I think the rest of the country is getting a taste of what it's been like to cover politics in Sydney, in New South Wales. So for a long time we've had this... 2GB back and forth with the Daily Telegraph. Yeah. And politicians will tell you, okay, we can put up with Telegraph beating us up or we can put up with Alan Jones beating us up. Mm, but when they're doing it both. together, mm. we're in trouble. So now Sky has unrolled this across the national media market. And whether or not the, the threat is legitimate, politicians feel it. They, they feel scared of it. Well, it doesn't say a lot about our politicians then if they can be no. influenced by... Well, that's what I was going to say. Is, I mean, yeah. at some point I you mean, have to hold them accountable and say, come on. I mean, we do you know. elect And they have been called out. I mean, they have been called out in the last week. The pollies. The pollies, yeah, by various well, commentators. I think they've been found on wanting left. on many levels. Yes. In there. Just uh, let's move on to Kevin Rudd, and uh, I'll stick with you, Nick, because uh, you had the joy of writing this story in the in the Herald the other day. Which Kevin, one? Uh, well, Kevin Rudd is his ah. opinion piece. Uh, going off, going absolutely off in a very Kevin Rudd-like way, calling Rupert Murdoch a cancer. Overstatement? I, well, it's colourful language from a, an effective comment writer who is also pretty well known for his invective. Uh, it's certainly not language I don't think any, many other people could have got away with. Mm. I think he, he argued a case well, and he's looking at News Corp globally, and, and he, he mounted a reasonable argument. I wouldn't have used language like that. Well, okay, so, uh, Jamie, Kevin, uh, Kevin Rudd. Is Kevin Rudd right? Is Rupert Murdoch a cancer? I mean, well, <laughs> when we let's look get at to the, the nitty-gritty. Is, is Rupert Murdoch a cancer? Well, if you look at the Levinson inquiry and what happened in the yes. UK, there yes. were serious questions raised about his newspapers and the way he did business. And I think that has had a very negative and corrosive effect on public trust in the media. If you look at the US, you can see the, the role that Fox has had in promoting Trump and the way it covers Trump. Um, if you look at uh, the UK... At, Again, you've got Brexit. Now, Rupert Murdoch's newspapers had argued vociferously for years and reported on the European Union in a particular way mm. with a lot of... Uh, uh, it was very vindictive. And I think that actually... I think that had a real impact over the very long term in 
the public's attitude towards the EU in Britain. So I think uh, he's had a pretty negative effect on the... But isn't he allowed to... I mean, he's the proprietor of this news organisation. He's allowed to have views and he's allowed to... Right? No one's saying otherwise. It's just... Yeah, I'm just... I'm not saying yeah. we should be regulating this, you know, changing regulation, cracking down on this. But what I'm saying is this, when you look at the three countries and the impact that it's had, mm-hmm. uh, you can point to some significant political events where Murdoch has had a very strong view, articulated it in a very strong way. And uh, you know, from ba- being based in Brussels for four years, the coverage of the EU and the straight banana syndrome, mm. I mean, a lot of it wasn't based on you know real hard news values of truth. Although it did talk to the, talking about straight bananas, it did talk to that particular audience, right? Of Brits. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the Brits loved it, and yes, they loved it, and they 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 sucked it up, and now they're leaving the EU. <laughs> and, and yet, though, I mean, I often sort of question and push back against this idea that media sort of controls everything. I mean, you know, we all get hate mail as journalists. We all have people tell us that we're doing things wrong. And I sometimes wonder what the world would look like if that frustration was directed actually at elected officials as opposed <laughs> to the media. Um, we're an easy punching bag, and that includes, you know people whose views are maybe different than ours and whether or not the Murdochs of the world are corrosive or not, you know, is it right for democracy to be focusing on the fourth estate or should they actually be saying, you know what, let's change the way politics works? Well, I mean, it's a very good point, but the fourth estate does set itself up as the middle between the politicians and the people. Yeah, but... I mean, that's the job. Exactly. But but the people also have a responsibility to hold democracy to account and, and not simply scapegoat media when they have an issue. I mean... Politics has become more insular over over time in all of these countries. The political class has become a more closed loop of people from the same worlds. Um, you don't see democracy as representative of the variety in all of these countries. These are problematic issues that are directly related to the way our democracies function separate from media. And, and also I think the the, uh, the challenges to the business models have meant that the number of voices that you know average people are getting to hear are fewer and fewer, particularly in Australia. And I think that is the problem that we're probably talking about here when we talk about Murdoch and, and News Corp. I mean, you know, is, is Murdoch a cancer? I, think, I agree with Jamie. I think he's got a lot to answer for. I mean, he always happens to be, um, you know, at the centre of, of, of momentous and, and generally, you know, challenging events that a lot of people don't agree with. Um, but... But at the same time, News Corp has got some, a stable of fantastic journalists who produce wonderful, you know, objective journalism that is completely awesome. I mean, you know, we can sit here and name them all. So it, it, in terms of um, – and, th- and that's what's getting out. But, but in terms of, you know, market share, in terms of what Australians are actually getting to hear, I mean, that's, I think that is the problem, that we're, we're just looking at this contracted, mm. This mm. contracted media mm. um, and – News Corp's oversized place in that. That's, why we, that's put, why we need the New York Times here. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. why we need the New York, the New York Times. Yeah. It was put to me by someone, uh, a senior lib sympathetic to, to Turnbull, who I think understands media more broadly pretty well, who said that uh, at, at a time when media is fracturing and falling apart, as, mm. as you were suggesting, and business models are, are looking very shaky at best, 
reflecting people's views back to them and amplifying them is actually a really effective business model. It mm. rusts your audience on. Mm-hmm. So there is a business, whatever Rupert Murdoch's ideological views, there is also a good business model. We've seen it in Fox News and we see it in Sky in, in ratcheting up the volume totally. and the, and the sure. snark. Okay. Oh, well, let's talk about Chris Kenny for a second, who does work for The Australian. I should add that I used to be deputy editor of that august organ. Um, he wrote a piece today which essentially said that the, the press gallery kind of missed the whole point of what was going on, that it was really all about, you know, another rerun of, of climate uh, policy as, as per energy policy this time, essentially climate policy. And that was the issue that brought Turnbull unstuck. And the Oz was writing this for weeks before, months before, and and uh, the Oz got it all wrong by kind of playing it out as a, some sort of personality crisis. Jamie, what do you? Th- I mean, I've read both J- uh, New York Times and FT reporting on this, of course, and the Herald, and uh, I would say you reported a lot about the climate change debate in it. But yeah, does Chris Kenny have a point? Is there this tendency to, in essence, play you know the persona rather than look at the policy that was behind it? Well, I mean, why did Turnbull get rolled? There's uh, probably six or seven different connecting factors to it. It's, I don't think it was just one. Mm. Um, so the climate debate, the fact that he brought uh, that policy uh, uh, into the public um, and uh, then changed it dramatically within the space of a week, you know, that undermined his political authority. Um, you know, term, but that's not just the only issue. You know, Turnbull was uh, never really liked by his party, but he was... He was only surviving because he was popular. You know, they wanted him there to win elections. But he lost 38 news polls in a row, so he undermined his position. He didn't get a lot of policies through. Where are the big flagship policies? Most of them got dumped. So that didn't that didn't give him the political capital to ward off Abbott. Uh, and then there was the campaign by the media. You know, I think it's a it's a it's a mixture of all these things mm. which have effectively, in the end, forced him to be ruled. But there is obviously the climate energy debate is pretty toxic in this country. It's cost the job of uh, numerous leaders, you know, Turnbull himself back in 2009. Twice now, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and Chris Kenny probably has a point, you know. Um, maybe Turnbull shouldn't have been so brave and actually tried to fix the problem at all. Maybe he should have sat back and uh-huh. twiddled his thumbs. And uh, few, that wouldn't have helped, though. I mean, he's just not one problems. of them. That's a problem. The, yeah, the core problem but is he was he, never one of them. He was never one of them, and so, that, and that's why they were, were never going to tolerate. It. I'm surprised he's lasted this long. Right. Okay. So Chris Kenny was he right in his piece? Uh, uh, what do you think Chris Kenny was saying? I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to kind it of make it out. Fault. Well, okay. So he's basically saying that, listen, we covered this. We saw this coming. Only all of you missed this. And my thought was, well, there's a thin line between saying we saw all this coming and we helped facilitate this, (laughs) you know, and he didn't really address that. Nor there was this other giant glaring omission in that piece, which was he didn't actually explain what the climate policy was and the degree to which it's actually quite modest compared to lots of other things that have happened. There was no policy in a piece that was essentially arguing that people should pay attention to policy. Mm. This was the point. That policy at the end, Turnbull had conceded everything. He had no policy. To people like Chris Kenny, who was saying you should completely ignore climate change, you should completely ignore Paris. Turnbull had had conceded that. So So the media has it both ways, is what you're saying? Well, Chris, in a way, the Oz. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think he was having it both. Ways. He was having it. I think that you know, if it wasn't that issue, it would have been another issue. This is the reason why Turnbull didn't touch the Uluru statement, because he knew that forces on his right were mobilising, and they, they got him on that. But I, I mean, Chris Kenny's other point, which he's made a career out of saying, is that there is a kind of the love love media, 
the sort of you know the Guardian, the ABC, the Herald, um, and it, it it kind of you know is in a way it's the antithesis of what news is. You know, it wants to play, it wants everyone to you know, it wants to uh, virtue signal all the time. It wants to have everything. It doesn't really think about the economic cost or anything. It doesn't think about the real people. It's all busy living in this bubble. I mean, that's a fair thing to point out. Well, that's a fair thing to point out. But, but in this him, case, but... if you look at if you look at energy policy, there's no constituency for Chris Kennedy, Chris Kenny's, or, or Tony Abbott's energy position. Big business, manufacturing, the energy companies themselves, and eighty percent of Australians want a climate policy and an energy policy that's combined to recognise the impact of climate change. Well, we'll, we'll get let's, let's stick with this for a second. Because isn't it kind of crap that we can't solve this energy? Climate policy. Well, we can't. While there is a powerful group that is forcing, not forcing, but but you know, championing perhaps combat on this issue. Not to well, mention a prime minister who thinks it's okay to take a big lump of coal into parliament. Yeah, but aren't we giving? I mean, at that point, we're giving the media a bit more power. We're, we're suggesting again, we're having it both ways, aren't we? Well, I think we're going back to the point that you came to earlier, which is. Blame the politicians. This is the new environment, as Jack Bailey said recently, I think, yeah. on the ABC. Politicians should be able to be tougher. Yeah. And the media should be looking at why, you know, the core reasons. Why does Australia find it so difficult to tackle this issue? Is it the coal lobby? Are they p- buying off politicians? Where are the donations? Um, well, both you and, and Damien have written pieces that basically say that it is the power of the coal lobby. It, and local media has written that yeah. as well. I mean, the ABC yeah. has mm-hmm. has looked at that issue. Mm-hmm. The Guardian's looked at that issue. I mean, it's not it's not, it's not as though it's not looked at. No, that's true. I, I think it's been looked at quite heavily. But it's the the, the issue is is that it, it appears to make no difference. But well, isn't it also the fact that you know the politics here are just so roughly evenly divided? I mean, this is a government with very little power to some degree. When you have you know, you, you, it, it's a small minority can really block so many different things in a divided government. And so, well, on one hand, it's cool, isn't it? Also, just the fact that the society itself is pretty divided, and that leads to gridlock. So, okay, let's just let's touch on this. On this, you both, you know, you report it, you report Australia to Australia and also to the world, to the MIT audience. What do you make of this when you, when you kind of when, <laughs> when you when you call out the news desk and go and they go, what what the what really? Again? Another prime minister. Yeah. Really? What's the unemployment? What's, yeah. <laughs> What's the growth of the economic growth? No, I, I, do, actually... I think the world is completely confused by Australia's political difficulties. I think that mm. it's confounding. I mean, I was in Canberra and it felt a little bit like being a new kid in a high school cafeteria and all kinds of rumors and craziness going around and you having no idea who the cool kids are, or who's in charge, or where you're supposed to get your food. Um, I mean, it just felt like a chaotic bunch of juveniles. Um, and that's basically what I think the world was looking at, was how does this country with in, you know, 26 years of growth, with a highly developed economy that solved all kinds of political challenges, from healthcare to guns um, to all kinds of things, how does it devolve into this state of chaos? Do you have a theory about that? No, I do not. Come I mean, on, I think. I, I mean, let's you know, do it like, now. let's do it live. I don't know. I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of different factors. I'm very much still trying to figure it out. I do think that it's part of what is happening in democracies all over the world, where there is this divide between a political class that's basically living in this hermetically sealed environment and a public that's increasingly disengaged. And so, this to me is a little bit of the consequence of decades of politics becoming more insular and distant from the people it's meant to serve, parties becoming more insular, um, and a public that can do more on its phone than it can do in the voting booth. And so there's a whole bunch of factors that are at play here that go beyond Australia, and I think this is just one example of many. So, Debbie, what did your audience make of events last week? 
I will tell you they were very interested. I mean, I was surprised to see the degree to which a global audience was paying very close attention to Australia. Um, And I think that there were certain issues that they were really wondering about. Climate change was definitely one of them. I mean, this is a country that has a a punishing drought. That is one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change in the world, and yet they can't figure out how to do something about this. Um, So I think that's one question. And then I do think it just comes – the world is also wondering, well – where do, where is the line of populism going to be drawn in the world's mature democracies? And, and, the, so, and Australia ends up being a kind of test case for that in a way. Yeah, I think so. Or it's one of many test, test cases. cases. I mean, you've got Hungary, yeah. you've got Germany, you've got all kinds of places, but this is one that they're oh, I, I love to. the idea that we're in the same sentence as Hungary. That's really... That's <laughs> really, that's I'm really actually Poland, also quite envious. How really can Australia can change their leaders so easily? Yeah. 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 Well, I got a lot of questions about that too. Well, gosh, would this ever happen in the United States? Yeah. Hint, hint, yeah. would anyone... Maybe, know, maybe like impeachment. Jamie, what did... You know, what did, so London's on the blower or Tokyo's on the blower going, uh, well, and you're going, yeah, I'm sorry, going to have to do it all again. <laughs> yeah, it's my second, actually. My second. Yeah, second. Oh, you're second. a veteran. Yeah. You don't usually get these when you go and do a no, four-year stint somewhere, but yeah. Um, I mean, one of the ironies here is that Australia, of course, has a pretty strong economy. It's, it hasn't had a recession in 28 years. Mm. Um, so, you know, most of the populism that we've seen I think in the last decade has come out of the financial crisis in 2008. So really there isn't that excuse for it here. But I think what you do see is some institutional factors that play a role. And Damien, you mentioned the street, uh, you mentioned the Senate. Mm -hmm. Getting anything through the Senate is pretty difficult in this country. You know, there's only been, um, a government's only had a majority for three years Mm -hmm. out of the last 30. I mean, that means it's really tricky. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a three-year electoral cycle, which is just nuts because Mm -hmm. a government gets in You've got one year to pass some stuff through or try to get it through, and then you're electioneering again. Um, so I think that's a factor. Uh, you've got the states against the federal government. So there's mm. this division. It's quite a complex balance. And um, then you've got the Westminster-type system. Where so you we've got too leaders. much democracy, is what we're saying. Yeah. Uh, you have compulsory voting. Yeah, there's we have too much few, democracy, yeah, is what um, you're saying. It's a, it's a very nice. specific <laughs> system that I think is probably playing a role in this because then you, yeah. you mix in the whole social media, the 24-7 news cycle, the quite a strong ideological bent on the media. And I think that's quite a volatile combination. And, but, uh, this is, but this is just sort of my point too, is like we have all these democratic issues, but we're talking about like why the media screwed this up. Well, you know, what would it look like if there were more proposals about how to structurally fix mm. the way political debate and political parties work in Australia? And how and why is that not a bigger part of the discussion? Yeah, I, think it's a, I think we should do a radio show on that. <laughs> I really do. I really well, do. And actually, Bill, uh, uh, Bill Shorten and Michael Malcolm Turnbull talked about this, moving to a four-year cycle recently. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, right. uh, but uh, the general consensus from everyone was nothing's possible because it's, uh, you have all these checks and balances. But in, in the UK, didn't they change the system of how, you know, question time works for the prime minister is not as visible? Like, there are examples of democracies actually fixing themselves. It's, it's, this is a fixable the problem. The Labour Party's fixed Exactly. Problem. I was just yeah. going to say that on a very s- small level, I suppose, in the, inside the party, the Labour Party mm-hmm. has prevented, well, mainly prevented, uh, a, a sitting leader to be rolled as easily as the Liberal to, to their great benefit. Well, I mean, uh, Albanese would be leader of the Labour Party. Liberal Party as well, mm-hmm. wanting to do... The same. Exactly. So it might happen. Well, it might happen. God, I think <laughs> if there was ever a moment for it to happen, uh, we haven't got a lot more time, but uh, Nick and Monica, you know, you've both been foreign correspondents, you in Russia famously, Nick, you in the US famously as well. Um, if you were sort of transposing what happened in, the, in Australia to the countries that you were reporting, how would you go about reporting what happened in uh, Australia last week, if you get my drift? I'll... 
I think Monica should go on that first. <laughs> oh, jeez. That was such, a, such an easy question, yeah, what would Peter. You tell, what would you tell the Russians? What would I tell <laughs> the yeah, Russians? That's a great question. That's what I really meant to say. What would we you tell have, the Russians? We have coups without an army. Yeah. Yeah, and we do it. <laughs> and we drag it out over five to seven days. Ooh. We give everybody a say in it. So, you know, you have a view, <laughs> a express coup. it. It's a democratic coup, no army involved. I love easy. It. I'd note the, the other upside to this is that it isn't a change of administration. There's a rejig and a reshuffle. It took a week. Uh, 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 yeah, elections our elections only take 40 days as well which Americans just blew them away when, you're, when yeah. you're two years into reporting <laughs> yeah. an American election campaign and you tell Americans we do it in a month hmm. there, are, there are some benefits Right. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a happy note to end it on, isn't yeah. it? I mean, yes. this is sort of subject we could talk about for a long time, but I think we're probably out of time, uh, unless anyone's got a summation. I mean, let's, let's just, we've had a lovely conversation. Let's just think. So what needs to change, Monica? What needs to change? Well, I think, as we've said, I mean, I think that there are some structural changes that need to be uh, need to be addressed, but they're not going to be because they're too big and they're too hard. What needs to change in the news media, though? Anything? Oh, in the news media? Yeah. Uh, well, oh, goodness, more of it. Uh, that'd help for more a start. More diversity of ownership. M- more diversity of ownership would be fantastic. Mm. Um, that's not going to happen either. And, um, uh, you know, a little less navel-gazing. Jamie, what, what needs to change? Maybe more than one person for the FT would be a start? That would be great, yeah. especially for moments like this. Yeah. Moments like this, but I guess one of the ironies is we're talking about media diversity. Of course, Turnbull uh, got media reform through, which I think was very much welcomed by News Corp, but he didn't get a lot of. Uh, well, it didn't really lead to any more diversity. No. Hey, Nick. I think someone like you, Peter, needs to work out a new business model. I'm so trying. The, the rivers of gold reopen, and we can <laughs> okay. we can put in acres of newsprint about policy. Oh, what a great idea! Okay, fine. I'm working on that. Damien, what needs to happen? Uh, I think readers and consumers of news and media need to um, work harder to get outside some of these bubbles that the media tries to push them into. I think we're not alone in this. This is something that our readers and our audiences need to take responsibility for, too. Okay. On that wonderful note, I'd like to say that's all from the Fourth Estate this week. I would like to thank my esteemed guests, uh, Monica Attard. Thank you, Monica. Welcome. Uh, Nick O'Malley. Thank you. It's been fun. Uh, Jamie Smith. Thanks. And Damien Cave. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. I'd like to say that next week we got Evie McGuire. She'll be back in the hot seat. And make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics, and a few things in between uh, very soon. I'd like to thank my producer, Anthony Dockerell. My name is Peter Frey, and thank you very much for listening. Good night. Good night.